As we continue to worship this morning, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke once again. Uh, today we are in Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Luke 12, 1 through 12. And I will be reading uh, the scriptures within the sermon this morning, Luke 12, 1 to 12. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we praise you because your word has been revealed to us, that you've shared with us these truths because, uh, <clears throat> because of your love for us, that you desire to make known to us uh, <clears throat> your will and your plan of salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would reveal to us more of Christ and more of His will for our lives, that we might align our, our lives and our minds and our actions and our attitudes in accordance with Your Word. Oh God, help us to be men and women who fear You and who love You, who live our lives in obedience to Your commands, that You would be glorified and that You would be honored through us and in us. I ask that Your Spirit would take Your Word and do go forth and accomplish your purpose for your word in each of our lives. Speak to us, Father, now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Near the end of his life, the Apostle Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy, his young disciple Timothy, these words of encouragement and warning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. And there the Apostle Paul writes, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As Paul followed Christ and as Timothy followed Paul, the life of a Christian is one of persecution and suffering. It's not only persecution and suffering, it's also a life of teachings and conduct and purpose and faith and patience and love and perseverance, etc. But the focus here in the repeated word is that Paul says, the life of a Christian is one of persecution and suffering. And sometimes, especially in the New Testament days, that suffering took the form of physical violence. At other times, it takes the form of social ostracism, and still others in the form of verbal contempt. It does not necessarily happen every day in the life of a believer, but it is the experience of lives lived for Christ Jesus. It ought not to come as a surprise when we consider that our Lord and Savior also faced persecution and suffering. Jesus knew, Jesus understood that that would be the case, that this would be the case for his followers as well. And that he not only provided an example to us of how one ought to conduct himself in the face of persecution and suffering, but he also provided for us instruction in how we ought to conduct ourselves in the face of suffering. 
In this morning's passage that we're going to look at, Luke chapter 12, verse 1 to 12, Jesus provides instructions to his disciples in the face of increasing opposition and inevitable persecution. In the previous passage, Jesus had just had a major confrontation at a dinner with the Pharisees and scribes. And he had plainly warned them of their dangerous condition. He pronounced, in fact, six woes upon them. They had thought themselves right with God. They had thought themselves full of light. But in reality, they were full of darkness. They were full of greed and wickedness. And Jesus' words provoked them to a greater opposition of him. They began to increase their hostility and they looked for ways to discredit him. The disciples of Jesus at this point are completely unaware of how great this opposition would, would become. But Jesus, being the Son of God, knows all things. And he knows where his path is leading. In fact, by this time in the, in the text, he is heading towards Jerusalem for that very purpose, to die and be crucified. He knows it will get much worse. And he knows that eventually the persecution and suffering that he endures will, will extend eventually to his disciples. So at this point in his ministry, Jesus then prepares his disciples to face this inevitable op- opposition and persecution that will come. In these 12 verses of chapter 12, we see three commands, or actually three calls, or three instructions for the disciples of Christ to heed in the face of increasing opposition. Jesus wants us to to keep these things in mind, to be aware of these instructions, to make these, uh, to follow these these his these way these callings that he gives to us, so that we might know how to face persecution when it arises. Along with each call, Jesus is also provides an encouraging promise with each one. And so I pray that may these calls and corresponding promises equip you as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus Christ for the inevitable opposition and persecution that all who are in Christ Jesus, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, will eventually face. And so we come to chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, where we see the first call that Jesus extends to his disciples. And it is a call to beware of hypocrisy. Beware of hypocrisy. In verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12, we read these words. Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. Verse 1 here gives us the setting. The verse connects these sayings with the circumstances that just proceed in verses 53 and 54. As Jesus endures this increasing opposition and persecution, he also experiences increasing popularity. It says here that thousands of people, the word is literally, is the word from which we get myriads, myriads of people are gathering together to hear and to see Jesus. The crowd is so great that people are actually stepping on one another to approach him and gather near him. 
Now, it's important to note that Jesus' popularity does not necessarily translate to genuine saving faith. People are seeking Jesus for many different reasons, just as people today seek Jesus for many different reasons. There were the curious onlookers drawn to controversy, the controversy that he was having with Pharisees and scribes. There were would-be followers hoping to receive some blessing from him. Certainly, still among the crowds were those who accused him of being in league with Satan, and there were those who still wanted to demand of him a sign. And among this massive crowds were his band of faithful disciples. And for these folks from Galilee, the throngs were a clear sign that this was now the big leagues. Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, where the conflict with religious leaders would come to a head. Jesus knew what lay ahead, even though they didn't. So he begins to speak to his disciples now. He began saying to his disciples, first of all, in this whole passage, in this chapter 12 and in chapter 13, he kind of alternates, speaks mostly to his disciples, but he also at times will address the crowds, disciples, crowds. So he, but even as he speaks to disciples, it really is heard by the crowds that are all around. So this, to this day, these are words for all who would and will follow Jesus. As to this first call, Jesus simply says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware. Watch out. Be on guard. Jesus uses the imagery of leaven to describe the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Now, I'm not a baker, but I know some of you out there are bakers, and pretty good bakers, that is. And I know that you understand what leaven, the importance of leaven and yeast, and we can read about it, but supposedly it's, some, it's this compound that's used in baking bread. And if you add it to bread and it would allow it to rise, it would, it would, you only need to put a little bit in and then it would cause, it would eventually spread throughout the whole dough and it would cause it to rise. Only a little bit was required and you wouldn't need too much. Because inevitably that yeast, once put in, once let, put into the bread, uh, to the lump, would spread throughout the whole dough. A little leaven will leaven the whole dough. In the previous passage, Jesus had warned the Pharisees of being hypocrites, of how they were outwardly following their own religious tr- traditions and rules, but inwardly ne- neglecting the more important things like justice and the love of God. This is back in 39 through 44 of chapter 11. Their hypocrisy they're focused on, on only externals, but without remember, forgetting the, the internals. As religious leaders made them, Jesus described them as like concealed tombs. They were those that uh, <clears throat> corrupted all who followed them. And so Jesus warns his disciples now to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of hypocrisy. This is not just something that only the religious leaders are guilty of, but those who follow the religious leaders, those who imitate the religious leaders, would too become guilty of hypocrisy. They would follow after the ways. Jesus wants his disciples to be on the alert for hypocrisy in the lives of his disciples. Now, as motivation to continually be vigilant against hypocrisy in our lives, Jesus offers a promise, a promise in verses 2 to 3. And this promise is that all will eventually be revealed. There's nothing that's hidden now that won't one day be known. There's nothing that we do in the dark that won't one day be brought to light. 
underlying this future revelation is God's omniscience. God knows all that is going on. He knows what's going on in your lives. He knows what's going on in your homes, in your minds, your thoughts, your secret lives. He knows all things. And one day, what God already knows, but what you think nobody else knows, and maybe nobody else knows, will be brought to light. He one day in judgment will reveal all for what it is, whether it is deeds done in secret or words spoken in covert. God will one day bring it all to light in the day of judgment. Paul refers to this future judgment with a similar wording in 1 Corinthians 4, 4 verse 5. Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Here's motivation to beware and put away hypocrisy in our lives. Because one day, the hypocrisy is if it continues, it will be revealed in the day of judgment. If you're living a lie or indulging in secret sin, God knows. And what you do in secret one day be revealed before all. So don't fall into hypocrisy. If you're caught up in that secret sin, something that's hidden, nobody else knows, repent now. Turn away from sin now. Turn away from a life of hypocrisy. Turn to God for help. Cry out to Him. Don't be a hypocrite because hypocrisy is contagious. Not only is it shameful when it will be revealed, but it's worse is that in this life, it may never be revealed in this life, but it is contagious. It spreads. It affects others. This is especially true for those of us who are religious leaders, for those who are teachers, those who are ministry leaders, those who are elders and shepherds of Christ's church. If we do not live according to what we teach, we communicate to others that that's, it's okay to do that. We are a Bible teaching church. We're a Bible church, right? And we are, we, one of our strengths is that we communicate God's truths faithfully. We communicate right doctrine. But God help us if we as a Bible church can communicate that we can ignore important things like justice and the love of God as long as we simply teach the right doctrine. Lord, help us from such kind of hypocrisy. Because brothers and sisters, right doctrine among us, right doctrine taught is meant to produce right practice in our lives. And if it doesn't, then we have not truly understood God's truths. I read this great statement this week, and this is, kind of, this is really challenging. It's probably you've seen it before. But if the statement goes something like this. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be evidence to convict you. If one looked at your life, not just here on, or when we used to gather on Sundays or when you're in public, if one looked at your whole life during day and night, would there be enough evidence? Is there evidence that you are a follower of Jesus Christ? By the way, the warning against hypocrisy is not just for religious leaders, but it's also especially needed for, for those of us who are parents. Even during the shelter and place, we've, we've had several families have babies already. Congratulations, all of you new moms and dads. 
But those of us that our parents understand that our kids will see and imitate everything that we do and we live out. They'll imitate our kind of faith. If we act all religious together on Sundays but go home and act like sinners the rest of the week, you know what that teaches our children? That our Christian faith is a sham. At best, they will walk away rejecting the faith because they didn't do anything for my parents. But at worst, they will imitate us and profess faith while living in darkness, thinking that they're saved when in reality they're not. We set the example for them, brothers and sisters. Hypocrisy is contagious. And for all honest, we are all hypocrites at times. None of us are perfect. We're not God. We sin. We're all, we're not, we are not always what we teach and believe. But the difference between the genuine believer and the false believer is our response when we sin. Do we confess immediately and repent of sin? Or do we do nothing about it and say, oh, no. Peter tells us the right response in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. The Christian life is to be one on one hand, putting aside all hypocrisy and all sorts of other sins, and to counter it, we are to be longing for the pure milk of the word so that we may grow in respect to our salvation. A continual thirsting for God's word is the key to keeping hypocrisy at bay. Jesus Christ instructs his disciples to beware of hypocrisy. The thoughts of the Pharisees and their, uh, and their increasing opposition lead Jesus to give a second call to his disciples. And second, we find the second call in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 12. And the second call that Jesus gives his disciples is to do not fear man. Do not fear man. Read verses 4 and 5 with me. Jesus says, he goes on, he says, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you, whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Notice that Jesus calls his disciples, first of all, that he calls them my friends. What an encouragement. You know, this is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus is recorded as a directly addressing his disciples as friends my friends. He is the Son of God, the Lord of all creation, holy God, and he calls his disciples friends. There's an intimacy here, a a conveyance of love. Jesus, of course, does explain elsewhere why he calls us his friends. In John 15, verse 14 to 15, He says these words, You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. See, Christ's disciples are those who are given God's word so that they may do them. Those who do them are those whom Jesus calls his friends. Those who follow his ways, follow his instructions. Jesus reminds his disciples of this relationship, particularly as he prepares them for the persecution they will face from those who hate him. In fact, in three verses later, in John 15, where Jesus had just called them friends, Jesus would say these words to prepare his disciples for persecution. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then down to verse 20. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Here in Luke chapter 12, then, Jesus instructs his disciples with this in mind. In following Jesus, some of his disciples will become martyrs for their faith. And Jesus says to his disciples, Do not fear man. Do not fear the martyrdom the, the, that, they can, uh, that they can bring about <clears throat> against you because of your, your faith in Him, your faith in Jesus. But instead, he says, fear God. The context here is not just fearing man in general, though some of us are people who fear men, have a fear of man. In general, but really, he's saying it's about fearing those who persecute you because of your faith. When faced with persecution, we can be afraid. We may be so afraid that we will be tempted to deny our faith, to deny Jesus Christ. Or we'll be tempted to, not just deny, but we'll be those who will be tempted to keep it a secret. To not speak so loudly about who we are. We're, we're secret followers of Jesus, Jesus Christ. We're like Nicodemus coming in the middle of the night to find out more about Jesus, but not wanting everyone else to know. When we deny our faith and we keep our faith a secret and we don't deny it we'll, we'll say yeah I believe in Jesus you know privately but we won't say it out publicly if the people at our work the people at our schools people in our homes don't know we're Christians that kind of that kind of faith that may be a reflection of a fear of men because we're afraid that they'll persecute they'll be opposed to us but Jesus says instead, Jesus emphatically states not once, not twice, but three times in verse 5 to what? To, to fear God. Fear Him. Fear the one who can do much worse than martyrdom. The reason to fear God and not man is because man can't do anything else once they've killed you, Jesus says. But God, on the other hand, not only has the power to kill you, but also to cast you into hell the place of eternal torment for the wicked. The doctrine of hell is, is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus believes in the doctrine of hell. And he believes and he knows, tells us that you should fear God because God can cast you into hell after he kills you. That's not a popular doctrine anymore. Many would like to think that hell is just a, it's a figure of speech. Perhaps it's just a temporary place, like the false doctrine of purgatory. But scripture teaches, Jesus teaches, that hell is a real place, a place of eternal torment, of anguish, of pain, of darkness, of, of agony. And therefore, we should fear the one 
who has the power to cast one into hell, not just for a lifetime, for a moment, but for eternity. It's not really part of our message these days. We'd like to emphasize that God is love, and God is love. But God is also a God of justice, and God is a God of wrath. And though you may not experience God's wrath, the Scriptures teach us that His wrath is being reserved for those of us who continue in sin. And so he says, fear God. Jesus says, fear God, not men. What does it mean to fear God? To fear Him involves, on one hand, there is a literal kind of dread that one ought to feel. It's the the fear of some power that is greater than us. It's like when you go to the ocean on Ocean Beach nearby, if you've been there recently, you should have a healthy fear of the, of the greatness of the ocean, that it's dangerous. You should have a healthy fear of fire when its flames are burning because it's dangerous. You should have a healthy fear of knives or guns because it's dangerous. Those can kill you. But we should have an even healthier fear of God because He may kill you, but He can also cast you into hell forever. There's that kind of fear. But on the other hand, along with that fear, the fear of God involves a reverence, an awe of God. And because God is so holy, God is so great, there should be an awe. And in fact, we would, <clears throat> and <clears throat> it drives us to be amazed before Him, to stand before Him in awe. It's like, you know, when you see something that's amazing, sometimes, you know, we just, you gotta get up and take a closer look at it. And that's, and in that way, that's what the fear of God drives you to be in awe, to look upon God. It should drive us to, to seek to know more about Him, to know of His will. It should drive us to, to want to follow His commands because we fear the Lord. Jesus calls His disciples to not fear man, but to fear God. And as a comfort to his disciples, Jesus offers another promise. A promise in verses 6 to 7 of chapter 12. And he writes, or he says these words to his disciples. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I think we all know what sparrows are. In our backyard, we have sparrows coming and going. And I love it because our kids will just will see the different birds and they're trying to identify the sparrow, sparrow. And I like every time we see the sparrows, say that's a reminder. You just point out to our kids, that's a reminder that God cares for us. You're more important than sparrows. That's kind of the image. These sparrows, they're all over the place, aren't they? <laughs> they're not just here, but they were uh, in Israel as well. Little common brown looking birds. Cute little things, but they were, they were cheap. Um, Jesus says here that five sparrows are sold for two cents. In the in a parallel passage, we're told by Jesus that two sparrows cost one penny, one cent. So apparently, if you buy uh, if you buy you know four of them, you get one for free. But Jesus promises that you are not forgotten by God because you are more valuable to Him than sparrows. Jesus talks about how God doesn't, <clears throat> doesn't even forget a single sparrow. He knows them all. Not one of them are forgotten. They're, though they are insignificant, they are not forgotten. God knows everything about the sparrows. He knows everything, not only about sparrows, but He knows everything about you. 
He knows all the sparrows. He knows all, uh, all his, his people. He knows the number of hairs on your head. And since this is an argument from lesser to greater, and since he does not forget the sparrows, you who are more important than the sparrows, you're more important than many sparrows because you're created in the image of God. Then you can be assured that God does not forget you, especially when you are alone, especially when you're facing persecution and suffering for Christ. You don't have to be afraid. God knows and He cares for you. This is the promise that God made. He promised not to forget you. It's not a promise that He will necessarily take you out of persecution, take you out of suffering. God may allow you to to die a martyr for Christ. I read this week about a, a missionary pilot in uh, <clears throat> uh, in a part of the in Indonesia area, Papua New Guinea, I believe, who crashed and died. A woman, a sister, probably insignificant, her death, forgotten there in the jungles of uh, former former Irian Jaya, and though forgotten by the world. Death considered insignificant compared to the pandemic of, that is going on and around our world. She is not forgotten by God. God knows and cares for her. And though he's allowed, allowed for her to die while flying supplies to missionaries, God has not forgotten her. She is now with him in, in heaven. God knows and cares for each one of his saints. Jesus' instruction is needed for us still today, isn't it? <clears throat> As Americans, we, we may not face the physical violence of persecution like some of our saints, some of our brethren around the world. But we face persecution nevertheless. We face ostracism. We face derision for our faith. Some of us may not be allowed to work in some places because of our Christian faith. Yet we must not compromise our faith out of a fear of man. But instead, we must confess our faith continually out of a fear of God. This leads to Jesus' third call to his disciples. Our third and final call is found in verses 8 to 12. And that is, Jesus calls his disciples to confess him before men. To confess, we are to confess Jesus before men. Verse 8 through 9 of chapter 12. Again, Jesus, and I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus' words here are spoken in the context of when persecution arises, when suffering comes into your life, that some out of fear will deny Christ. And Jesus then calls his disciples to not deny him, but instead to confess him before men. He's not necessarily talking about evangelism here, though that may be involved when one confesses Jesus. But the idea of confession is simply to acknowledge Jesus for who he is, 
acknowledge one, him as the Messiah, the Messianic Son of Man. Today, when, when, we, and this, when we talk about one's salvation, we might say that oh, a person believes or doesn't believe in Jesus, right? That's, that's how we think about one who's saved. But in the early church, when they spoke of a, of, a, of a believer, one who was saved, they spoke about one who confessed Jesus as Lord. That, was a, that confession of Jesus as Lord was a synonym for faith in Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses this terminology in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. He says there that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The confession of faith in Jesus was often accompanied by immediately then, in those days, by baptism. And there would be this, the inward confession would then manifest an outward confession, a public confession, by being visibly immersed in water. There others would see the reality of one's inward confession. I know during this time in the church, uh, we don't, we're not together, but if you would like to be baptized, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you have not been baptized, you ought to be baptized as an out- outward expression of your confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. If you would like to, just come let, let me know, and just we'll try to find a safe manner for you to be baptized as soon as possible. But we all, <clears throat> all of us, when facing when facing persecution, for in fact, all of us, whether we're facing persecution, have a choice to make with regards to what we confess of Jesus. Will we confess Jesus as Lord, or will we deny Jesus as Lord? You you either do or you don't. You either confess Him or you deny Him. There's no choice. If you say, "Oh, I'm, I don't matter, make a decision," then you are denying Jesus as Lord. You either confess Jesus Lord or you deny Jesus Lord. And how you respond, according to Jesus, to how you can respond to Jesus, how you confess Him or deny Him here on earth before men will determine how Jesus will respond to you in heaven before the angels and before God Himself in the day of judgment. Jesus will confess you before God and the angels if you confess Him. But if you deny him, Jesus will deny you in the day of judgment before God and his angels. In the next verse, in verse 10, Jesus takes the warning just a bit further. He, he amps it up in verse 10. And this is a, <clears throat> a, a challenging verse to interpret, but we read it nevertheless. And everyone, Jesus says, who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. As here Jesus says that you can speak a word, you can against the Son of Man, against Jesus himself. You can blaspheme Jesus. And that can be forgiven. I know there are people who blaspheme Jesus, who deny Jesus. I know, I just remember a young man <laughs> many, many years ago who left and right denied Jesus, who used Jesus' name in vain. He was one who, who believed that all those who believe in Jesus are basically those who are brainwashed. Yet, that man found forgiveness. 
You can blaspheme the Son of Man. You can use His name in vain. You can call His people crazy. And you can still be forgiven. So that's, that's the point of that first part. But then He says, but if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, if you speak a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven you. And so, what is this blasphemy of the Spirit? What is You can be forgiven for blasphemy against the Son of Man, but you can't, you can't be forgiven for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Is it when we say something bad about the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, defined in, uh, by MacArthur in his study Bible, as a deliberate, willful, settled hostility toward Christ. It is that deliberate, intentional, that is, Knowing, knowing the truth, but still deliberately and willfully being hostile and deny Christ. Jesus charged this sin against the Pharisees in Matthew twelve thirty one, who, when in a very similar instance, knowing that uh, Jesus cast out, knowing that Jesus cast out demons by the power of God, they still attributed it to the work of Satan. See, the one who deliberately and persistently rejects the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus is guilty, becomes guilty of blasphemy in the Spirit, and they will not find forgiveness. Of course, no one can know for certain if he or she has committed blasphemy of the Spirit. But blasphemy of the Spirit does not take place without first committing blasphemy against the Son, speaking a word against Jesus. And it's by rejecting Jesus over and over, even as one studies the Scriptures and hears the Word of God and and hears the testimony and and observes the world and and sees changed lives and even comes to acknowledge that yeah, there is a God, but I still don't want to believe in Him. And yes, Jesus Christ was a real man and He did exist because of the historical records, but I still don't want to believe Him. It's like saying, yeah, I believe the Bible's true, but I still don't want to believe in Him. That continual rejection of Jesus Christ is eventually going to lead to a blasphemy against because every time that you hear the truth is a work of the Spirit bringing the Word of God to your ears, to your life, so you would turn your life over to Him and believe upon Christ. But every time that you harden your heart and reject Him, you are guilty of eventually committing blasphemy against the Spirit. And there will be no forgiveness. Maybe you're out there right now and you have not received Jesus Christ. And you're probably wondering, have I committed blasphemy against the Spirit? I want to encourage you. If you're concerned about whether you've committed the blasphemy of the Spirit, you've most likely not committed blasphemy of the Spirit. Because Jesus' promise is that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. Even now, you can turn your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can, uh, you can acknowledge that who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God, and that He came and died for your sins, and that He died in your place, so that you can put your faith and tr- trust in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection, and be forgiven of your sins. Not because of anything you've done, but all because of what Jesus has done. And you can turn to faith in Him right now, and receive and confess Jesus as Lord.
Jesus calls his disciples to confess him before men. To not deny him before men. To not deny him when threatened with persecution and with suffering. And as encouragement, Jesus offers another promise in verses 11 to 12. He promises the help of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in verse 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will teach you exactly what to say when the time comes to give an answer before those who persecute you. You don't have to worry about not having anything to say at that moment. The Spirit of God will give you an answer at that very moment. Not before, not after, but when the time comes. The Spirit guided the Apostle Peter to preach before the Sanhedrin when they questioned him about how he could heal a a man, uh, a, uh, a man in Acts chapter 4, he responds, when brought before the, the religious leaders, he responds this way in Acts chapter 4, verse 10 and 12. He was filled with the Spirit. He said these words, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which has which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. When the time came to give an answer before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the Spirit taught Peter exactly what to say. And just as the Spirit taught Peter what to say, the Spirit will do the same for you. He has done so for countless saints throughout the history who have faced persecution. Great men and women like Martin Luther, for instance. Given by the Spirit of God the words to say at the moment of decision, to confess or deny Christ, the Spirit taught them and the Spirit will teach you what to say. That's Jesus' promise. A lot of times I've sometimes reflected myself so what will it be like? Well, how will I respond when, when I face persecution? And in, in fear, there are times that I wonder, will I, will I deny Christ? I, I don't want to deny Christ, but I'm afraid that I will deny Christ. Especially if there's a great cost. But we who commit ourselves to following Jesus Christ, we can hold on to this promise. Lord, I don't know, and I know I'm weak but I'm going to trust in you that when the time comes, your spirit will give me the work we say. Your spirit will help me to not deny Christ. Your spirit will help me to confess Jesus before men. And Jesus will keep his promise. Jesus knows. Jesus knew that his disciples would face a world of opposition and persecution. And this is the world that we continue to live in. Though our persecution in America tends to be more of the subtle kind, it still takes place nonetheless. And Jesus' call for you and me is the same. 
He calls us with these three callings. Beware of hypocrisy in your life. Do not fear man. And confess Jesus before men. If you think about it, these three callings are are not so much actions. Yes, there's something you might be able to do, but really they're generally, they're, they're almost... They may be more commitments, internal attitudes that we make and that we have in our hearts. And these are commitments that you and I can make before persecution arises, before it gets more intense. But if you think about it too, the underlying attitude for all of these, to beware of hypocrisy, to not fear man, to confess Jesus before men, what helps us, what attitude underlies them all? the fear of God. Fearing Him who when He kills can cast your soul into hell. Brothers and sisters, we need to be men and women, saints who fear God more than we fear men. When we fear God, then we will not want to live a life of hypocrisy, a false Christian life, a fake life, because all that is hidden will be revealed in the day of judgment before God. And, let, and if we fear God, we will not fear men. And if we fear God, we will boldly confess Jesus, not deny Jesus before men. I want to end with just these words from wise King Solomon. And from his book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verses 13 to 14. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let us fear God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, we, I don't know what exact situations of each and every believer out there right now, but Lord, I know your word says, for that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so Lord, as we live godly lives in pursuit of Christ, we pray that when we face persecution, that we will respond as Jesus calls us to, as his disciples. Help us, Lord, to be aware of hypocrisy in our lives, to not try to hide our Christian faith, but to live out our Christian faith in our lives. Help us, Lord, to not fear man, fear those and, and to keep quiet about our faith instead, but help us to boldly confess Jesus before men. Father, we thank you for the promises that you've revealed that Jesus left for us. Thank you for the promise that one day everything that is hidden will be revealed. One, thank you, uh, Lord, just for the promise that God does not forget us, that he, we meet, are more valuable to him than the sparrows. And thank you for the promise. Ultimately, Lord, that your spirit will give us the words to say when the time comes. Lord, thank you for your promises and thank you for these callings that we've heard from Jesus. 
And Father, underlying it all, Lord, help us to respond in a fear of you, a holy reverence, the desires to know you, to seek after you, to follow your ways. For we know that in your ways is the way of life. God, I pray that if there's anyone still with us right now even who does not yet know Jesus Christ their Savior, has not put their faith in Jesus, that you would bring them to saving faith right now. Grant them faith to believe in Christ. Turn from, help them to turn from their life of sin, life of selfishness, and turn to a life of faith and service unto you to, be, to confess Jesus as Lord and King of their lives. To receive the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf and to believe in their hearts that God, that you have raised him from the dead, that he now lives to intercede on our behalf. Oh, Father, do a work in each of our lives. Do a work in causing us to renew our commitments to fear you and to follow after you no matter what persecution and suffering come our way. Father, we are weak. We're often not courageous. But Lord, we will depend upon you for when the time comes. Lord, that we might praise you and glorify you through our lives, lived or sacrificed for you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.